Before I continue on the topic of sentencing and the importance of how we language our experience, I want to share some personal background. I was brought up in a fundamental religious background with a heavy emphasis on sin, guilt, and the threat of hell. Because I did not know alternatives, I thought of myself as being born in original sin and going downhill from there, which didn't facilitate the development of positive self-esteem. Because of this disease, when I was in graduate school, I sought out the help of a therapist. Since Sigmund Freud's theories were the most common thought at the university, I ended up with a psychoanalyst in an analysis for about three years. He had studied with Freud, smoked a cigar in the sessions, and seemed primarily interested in my childhood and any dreams I might have. Of course, I did the usual blaming of my parents, attributing the cause of my problems to them, and my therapist never pointed out that was then history. You are now in the now, free to do myself differently. We sorted through yesterday's broccoli, looking for clues to my difficulties, and analyzed my dreams. The emphasis was on the past, not what I could do now and in the future. I was encouraged to do free association, which turned out to be expensive over the amount of time that I put myself through this effort. I finally quit against his advice, since I did not seem to be making much progress, even though I knew that change would take a long time. He never said that he could help me. However, that seemed implicit when he was the knowledgeable doctor and I was but a patient although I turned out impatient. I want to add that he never told me that he couldn't help me, which might have been helpful since I might have begun to look for wisdom within rather than waiting for his wisdom to fix me. As I look back, I think he was sincere, as sincere as I had been in my practice, so I disappeared any resentment that I created when I quit. Also, I figured out, or relabeled, that it was a great experience of my learning what not to do. Whenever I asked any question about him, he always turned it back to me, saying this is about you, not me. He talked very little, and I do not remember any humor. I laid on the couch, and he sat at a desk where I could not see him, apparently providing the blank screen for my ramblings. I remember crying about some of my childhood memories, and I hoped that he could see that I had suffered enough and that he would get out a stamp and stamp on my forehead, a big okay. Of course, that was unrealistic, but the peculiar part was when I realized that even if he had, it would not be enough. From what I have shared about my interactions with my clients, not patients, you can see that I approach this process very differently. I use comics and encourage humor, since a person can't get out of a hole by digging it deeper any more than a serious grim person can get out of the seriousness by getting more serious. So, although the client and I talk about topics considered serious, we don't have to do grim while discussing. I have come to the conclusion that if our interaction isn't enjoyable, not much is being accomplished. 
Most clients come in pretty serious and wanting to feel better, so I don't see where a focus on the past and a lot of gut grinding is relevant to creating a present that leads to a better future. Think about this. If a person enjoys counseling sessions, he or she is well on the way to their goal, which is to feel better. I very much enjoy interacting with my clients, so I'm not watching the clock. And I do delight when a client does an aha experience. And I want to add, I am clear that I did not help the client. She or he took some of my suggestions and created a value by experimenting with changing their mind and behavior. I view my coaching sessions as the client and I getting together and ad-libbing about different ways of thinking. A last word about the Freudian approach, where the mind is divided up into different categories that he animated like id, ego, and superego, the latter being somewhat equivalent to our conscience and the id being like our primal, uncontrollable, raw nature. Another word that he introduced, or at least made popular, was an unconscious that was very powerful and clearly difficult for an individual to control. The difficulty I see in this categorization is that they become alibis for irresponsible behavior. Just as temper and jealousy were separated out and blamed for explosive behavior, the unconscious occupies much the same kind of niche. Remember statements that were used to split off and make powerful sentences like, my temper took control. The statement that it must have been my unconscious also is an alibi that seems to absolve the person for the responsibility for their behavior. Again, it seems like the case where a person sentences him or herself to a pawn position by ceding the power to a powerful construct that does the controlling. Back to the back seat. Although this may seem simplistic, I tend to think of the mind's operation differently than most. Many people sentence themselves at being at the effect of the mind in statements like, my mind is driving me crazy, or my mind has a mind of its own, denying ownership. Just as we have a hand that is a useful tool in scratching or turning a page, I think of my mind as a tool for thinking thoughts, and I can change my thoughts. I recall a speaker that made a sentence that I will never forget. My mind is my favorite toy. That statement certainly suggests ownership as well as playfulness. I also like a statement that is very different but captures another aspect of our minds, this time from a Buddhist elder. The mind is like a drunken monkey staggering from one thought to another. People who do meditation certainly encounter this when they attempt to still or empty their mind. The way I think about the mind is somewhat analogous to a TV set. There is the channel that I am watching, i.e. I am aware that it could be called focal attention, almost as if there is nothing else. Then there are all those other channels that are available if I choose or select. However, they are outside of awareness until I do. Additionally, and importantly, the remote 
is in my hand. If you have read this far, you have been making up your interpretation and experience of what I have written. If you are sitting down, you are probably not aware of the pressure on your backside resulting from gravitational pull. Time for another cartoon. The Lockhorns by Hoist. The Lockhorns are approaching the marriage counselor's office. She says to her husband, Why do we bother coming here? He hasn't helped you one bit. In the counselor's office, she tells the counselor, Just tell us what to do and I'll see that he does it. Notice how you change channels for a moment. We can direct our minds to some extent, but it will never be still. Thinking back to Bert McTemper, who had created the issue with his temper by thinking it of it being powerful and uncontrollable. I invited him to change channels, i.e. interrupt his usual pattern of anger. And when he did, he created sufficient benefit that he basically disappeared the problem that he formerly had been appearing. He made an eye turn, and I did not have to explain anything about the use of his mind, because he created value from changing channels. When I suggested that he go back to his previous pattern, he rejected my comment.